but that's that's part of art it's so vulnerable and you just have to sort of infuse your characters with the truth that belongs to them even if it's different than what you as the writer feel I just think it's important for people to know that these dreams are not inaccessible to them. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sarah Penner, New York Times bestselling author of The Lost Apothecary. But I truly, I mean, I just got done telling you that I grew up in a two-bedroom log cabin, and I have no formal writing experience. I worked in finance, and here I am. I, I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and it's it just, it can literally happen to anybody. Sarah Penner worked in finance before she began writing seriously in 2015 after attending a moving lecture given by Elizabeth Gilbert. Soon after her talk, she enrolled in her first online writing class and hasn't looked back since. Penner is an avid traveler whose favorite destinations include London, Thailand, Ireland, Germany, Belize, and Grand Cayman. In early 2021, after 13 years in corporate America, she left her day job and is thrilled to call herself a full-time writer. Now, she is the New York Times best-selling author of the historical fiction and magical realism novel, The Lost Apothecary. So thank you for, for, for coming on, I, um, for spending part of your day to, to do this. I know you've been busy. I attended one of your events, and it, um, so, so a lot of this is going to be redundant, and I apologize about that. Um, oh, it's fine. So it's part of your job now, I guess. <laughs> very, yeah, very much so. It's, I, I, as you probably know, if you've tuned into any of my events, I worked in finance for 13 years and was thrilled in March to leave, um, to resign and, and move full-time into writing. And I think there's this, maybe a little bit of a misconception that I'm sort of sitting in the sunshine every day and working on a manuscript that's just moving along perfectly. And the reality is it's not all sunshine and roses. There are definitely days like today, for instance, this is my fifth call that I've had today. And so there are days that it definitely still feels like work. And that's perfectly fine because that's work is what I'm used to. I still have many years to pay my bills. And so uh, when interviews feel redundant or what have you, it's perfectly fine. I, I really very much think of it as this is this is my job now. And so some days will be wonderful and some days may feel a little repetitive, but it's all part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, again, yeah, thanks. I mean, hearing you say that, uh, I, I do, you know, I can't help but have a little empathy um, for you there. So again, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. Sure. Um, 
and yeah, um, so I'll, I'll keep it informal, just kind of like we have already here. Um, yeah. I do all of the post-production after, um, and so I'm not going to do like a formal introduction or anything like that. Okay. And Wonderful. I'll try to keep it to about 30 minutes. Um, that sounds great. Do you have any questions for me? I, I really don't, other than how long has this podcast been on the air? Not long. So um, I started this, it's a press, it's called History Through Fiction, and I publish historical novels, and mm -hmm. I launched it in 2019. And just as a part of, you know, trying to, to expand my audience and get some publicity, I started a, a podcast. And uh, I have one season out there, 10 episodes. And I'm currently interviewing authors right now in the spring and summer here um, for the launching season two of the podcast, which will go out in September, October, November. Okay. Um, well, that's wonderful. Kudos to yeah. you for having the initiative and kind of getting something running. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's been, it's nice to be my own boss. It's been fun to review manuscripts, talk to authors, do all those sorts of things and put my, I have an MFA so it's nice to put that to use in some capacity, even though it's not in the, you know, in the corporate world per se. Right. So do um, you write as well? Yeah, I, um, I'm working on my fifth novel right now. It's an alternative history. My previous novels relate to, I'm from Minnesota, so they all relate to Minnesota history mm -hmm. and in particular, the U.S. Dakota War of 1862, which is just another tragic event in U.S. history where the, the native peoples were exploited and marginalized and, and, and ex ex exiled from their homeland. And so I'm writing a novel where they turn things around and they, they actually win the war. Um, okay. And I, I taking part in pit mad today. Are you familiar with that? I am. Yes. Yeah. Um, best of luck to you. I actually, I was kind of, I put a tweet out earlier, um, wishing everyone good luck who's doing pit mad and reminding them. And so I'll remind you as well that I never actually had much luck with Twitter pitch contests. So I, I hope that everybody, if it's not your day that you, um, that you remember that this, there are so many paths to, getting agented and definitely can still find success, even if you don't have great success with the Twitter pitch contests. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I come at this realistically, you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough now where um, we all have hopes, I guess, of, of, I mean, we all define success differently, but yeah, I, I understand it's not the end of the world if I don't get a, a contacted from by an agent you know it, it doesn't end there and, and i'm sure as you know mm -hmm. that and and, and we're going to talk about this and we might as well talk about it now since we already are yeah. um your experience with your your first manuscript that you spent so much time on and i think you said you sent it to 100 different agents yeah. and it didn't go through but then then look where you are now Right. So I think so many published authors can relate to this experience. And the reality is your first book that you write, or, I, or let me rephrase that, the first book that you publish is often not the first book that you wrote. So it's learning how to write a book is such an intense endeavor. And there's so many different components and you're learning your voice, you're learning your style, you're learning how to, how to develop a character arc, you're learning how to weave subplots together in a way that makes sense. And so 
I did write my, my first manuscript, my first novel length project, and I spent about a year and a half on it. I very enthusiastically started querying agents and lo and behold, just like you said, 130 of them ultimately rejected me. And I was discouraged by that, of course, who wouldn't be, but I also knew from just connecting with other authors that this is a very normal thing and that many authors don't have their first or their second or their third books published. And really what matters is that you just take what you've learned and go back to another idea, trunk the trunk the story that didn't work. You may be able to re-envision it someday, but for now, just set it aside and start the new thing. And so that's very much what I did with The Lost Apothecary. I um, I reapproached a brand new premise and one that I felt was more marketable. My first book that I wrote, the the little bit of feedback that I did get from agents was that the characters in my story did not have agency and things were happening to them, but they, and they were reacting to that, but they weren't like taking their own lives and driving forward what was happening to them. And so with the lost apothecary, I, before I even wrote one page of the manuscript, I sat down and I thought, you know, who are my main characters and what ways can I give them agency and make them the heroes of their narrative? And I think that I probably took that as far uh, as you could go, because literally this is a story of women poisoning men who have wronged them. And lo and behold, it worked out. And I, with The Lost Apothecary, I only queried 12 agents and five of them offered to represent me. So I was in the very enviable position of being able to choose my, my top choice agent. And it's, I think it's a really great rag to riches story and just shows the importance of uh, keeping a course and not losing hope. And I think writers hear that all the time and it can feel very cliche and trite and repetitive, but truly that's what you have to do because this industry is full of rejection. I still am getting rejected for things, um, you know, on, on social media, of course, I only share my good news, but that doesn't mean that I don't encounter forms of rejection even now. And so I think that it's important for people to realize that most of us, even once we've been published and have met quote unquote success, we're still dealing with uh, with rejection. And you really just kind of have to build a thick skin and, and be able to wake up and get back to your work and try something new. Well, I can definitely attest to what you're saying. I, as I told you earlier, I have written four novels. I'm working on a fifth. And and it's something a lot of, when you, you don't realize how much learning goes into to writing a novel, no matter how many books you've read, or even if you have gone to school for it, and, and, you know, I don't want to put down my earlier work, but I can see, I can see myself grow in my writing and my voice grow mm -hmm. with each one. And it's kind of a rude awakening. Um, and I don't want to, you know, give you too much praise. I don't know, it, maybe your ego uh, is, <laughs> is growing at this point, but I'm sure as you, you mentioned about rejection, it gets popped once in a while. Um, mm -hmm. But that's just a, such a wonderful thing for you to take a step back and use that criticism and and apply it to your next novel and instead of getting angry. And I don't know, maybe you did get angry at times, but 
but you're able to push that aside and and use that criticism and and, and make it work into something amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote an entire book in 2020 during COVID and tried to sell it uh, a matter of months ago and got not outright rejected, but I didn't get the response that I wanted. And so I scratched it um, or scrapped it, I, I should say. It's it's saved on my desktop if I want to revisit it, but I I just didn't get the response that I wanted and I started something new. And so this was all, when everybody already knew The Lost Apothecary was going to be a big, buzzy success. And so, the, you know, it's, it's not just the name and what you've done already. They, you are going to always have to find fresh um, ways and inventive ways to tell stories if you want to get uh, attention in the industry, I think. And so that, you know, you mentioned possibly my ego is getting larger. I really would like to think that it's not uh, because I know that every single pitch I make ever will have to carry water and it will have to, if anything, adhere to this this brand that I've started to develop for myself, which is really inventive feminist historical fiction with kind of a thriller-esque component. And so if anything, I think it's going to get more challenging. I am working on my next book now, and I think it's very much aligned with that, um, that fresh hook that the industry wants that they got with the lost apothecary. But I'll be honest, every day I'm starting to sweat what my third book will be. And I'm like, please muse, just give me an idea. Like I have to stay on par with what's come before. And I know that big authors feel that every day. And I think really anyone who's started to develop a following or a fan base finds themselves in that position where we're creators and we're artists and we want to write what our heart tells us to write, but we also have set a bar for ourselves that we need to adhere to. And as long as I have that bar ahead of me, I don't know that my ego could ever get too big because I'm always going to be scared about is my best work behind me or is my, uh, you know, what do I need to do to keep up this, this cadence and this level of performance. So I try to just stay focused on what I'm working on now. So, you know, I mentioned I'm working on another book and I wake up every day and I just try to live in that world and get that story down and have faith that the universe will bring me my next third book idea when the time is right. And in a way, it's probably a good thing that I don't, I haven't settled on that next idea because I know a lot of authors have a lot of competing ideas. And so they struggle to focus on the, on the one thing. And for me, that's not at all the case. I'm very much able to focus on one project at a time. So I think that content is so important and, and there are ways to reuse content, but like I keep saying and using the words fresh and inventive, like that's what the industry wants, whether it's books or TV or streaming media. Um, they just want to see familiar patterns in a new way. And so that's a real challenge for all of us who are trying to tell stories that haven't yet been told. I think there's definitely an intuition to it. Um, there's There's also a balance between writing what you want to write and writing what the audience wants to, to read. Mm -hmm. And, and in addition to that, there's, there's that, in, that, that inspiration that, 
um, sometimes you can't force it. And maybe that's what you're doing right now is just working on your craft, practicing, waiting for that, that spark um, when that, that idea does come. And, and so I think that's great that you're willing to just keep working at it, keep working at it, but being patient without forcing anything. Absolutely. And, you know, we, a lot of creative people talk about this idea of a muse. And I mentioned that a few minutes ago. And I I don't totally believe in a lot of that new age type, those ideologies. But I will say that there's very much, you, you use the word intuition, and maybe that is the muse, because there are very much um, moments where I sit down with a manuscript or an idea and I try and just sit with it and see like, does this feel right? And it can be even at a scene level. Like if I'm putting a character in a specific situation and trying to pull together their dialogue or what they're thinking as they're processing a scene and you really can, I feel like if you listen closely enough to your intuition, you really can tell if something feels right. Or if, if you feel like you're trying to put a, um, a character in a situation that's not realistic. And so I think that when thinking about new book ideas, listening to that intuition is important. And the second book that I'm working on now, which I'm really so excited about, I it's the perfect confluence of a story that I want to write. Uh, but then when I was developing the pitch for it, my agent helped ask questions that she knows that readers will want to know as well. And so I was able to sort of blend it with what, what I think readers will want as well. So, um, and, and that's just very much an intuition thing, like you said. So I think all of us are creative, even people who've never put pen to paper and have never tried writing, and maybe they're listening to this and want to try writing someday. All of us have that creative side and that muse within us. But I think sometimes there's so much noise in the world and we have to kind of sit with ourselves for a while and ask like, what is really pulling at me? And also ask yourself what your goals are. So some people don't care about publication and that's wonderful. And in that instance, you should spend your time writing whatever you want to write. Um, for me, I, I did know, you know, a few years ago, I would love to, to quit my day job and write full time. So I had to be cognizant of what is the industry looking for and what are readers looking for and kind of find that sweet spot, which I think I've done for now. But to my earlier point, the question is, can I keep doing that in the years to come? Yeah, that's well said. Um, and, and I do want to move forward from this and get into your, your book, The Lost Apothecary. But I, I did want to back up once and just ask about um, your decision to scrap or at least uh, temporarily put aside your first manuscript or that next one you work on. How do you know? Because some writers wear rejection like a badge of honor. And how do you know when it's time to move on to a new project? Yeah, so that's a great question. So to date, I've uh, I've written four manuscripts. One of them is The Lost Apothecary. One of them is the one that I'm working on now. Uh, and then there's the two that I've scrapped, like you mentioned. And the question, how did I know when to move on? I mean, the first manuscript, the first thing I ever wrote, that was pretty obvious. After 130 agents said no, I mean, at that point, I was kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel with literary agents. And I 
I knew at this point, like I'm not going to get a top tier agent with this first manuscript because they all said no. And so I felt like I was doing myself a disservice by, by pushing something that uh, would be disadvantageous to me later down the road because I wanted a strong agent. So that was kind of my, my indicator for the first one. And then this, this uh, other manuscript, the one that I wrote during 2020, um, again, it was kind of just the lukewarm response and I'm really not a lukewarm person. Like I run very hot or cold. I think things in life, I either, um, I want them badly or I don't want them at all. There's not really a middle ground for me. And so when I wasn't getting the really warm response that I wanted, um, on that manuscript, I just was kind of dissatisfied. And that's very much like a, a personal me thing. I, I think that a lot of people probably would have said, I'm okay with that. Like I'll still sell this book and maybe it's not going to get as much support or backing as my debut, but I'm still willing to sell it. And for me, I just thought, you know, sophomore novels are so, uh, so notoriously difficult. I think a lot of writing careers, I don't want to say make or break by your sophomore novel, but you've got a lot of people waiting to see if you can put out a second book of the same caliber. And so I thought if the industry is giving me a lukewarm response on this manuscript, readers are too. And I don't want that. Like I want to produce another project that's as good, if not better than The Lost Apothecary. So for me, it was just very much kind of reading the room and and knowing like what's an early signal for how readers are going to perceive this idea as well. So that was that's really kind of how I knew, um, you know, with with that book as well. Well, it sounds like you know how to listen to yourself and listen to the feedback. And I and that's you know, that's a good quality to have. Um, a lot of people, myself included, can be a, can be a bit stubborn with our work, especially after spending so much as much time as an as an author does on one project. Absolutely, and I think that's a probably a very good, concise way to summarize what I've been saying is is listening to yourself and listening to the feedback of others. And I will just reiterate, you know, it's so easy for me to paint, um, paint this as a glossy picture and, you know, say, pretend that, that the rejection hasn't been painful or that I've, I've gotten over it easily. I mean, there, I, I've shed many tears, um, in years past over emails that I've gotten, um, or phone calls that I've gotten. I've had very difficult conversations with my agent about, projects that I'm working on um, that truly make me feel physically ill for several days. So that, but again, you know, we, we as humans, we don't share those things except with the people who are closest to us. And so um, certainly whatever anyone is feeling on the heels of a, of a tough rejection, I can promise that I have felt it at one time or another. Well, let's move on to to your novel, The Lost Apothecary, and and I actually want to start with your research because in your acknowledgments, this is uh, something that authors will be familiar with. You said to my lifelong comrade, the only woman who wouldn't blink an <laughs> eye at my internet search history. So I, I guess um, could you start by just summarizing for for people what The Lost Apothecary is about, and then what it was like for you 
researching poisons that could kill people. Yes. So the Lost Apothecary is about a female apothecary in 18th century London who sells well-disguised poisons to women seeking vengeance on the men who have wronged them. And 200 years later in present day London, a woman goes mudlarking along the river Thames and finds a small mysterious apothecary vial and soon suspects that she has found the culprit in the never solved apothecary murders that haunted London 200 years earlier. So there's a few things that I said there, apothecary murders, uh, poison. And that definitely makes for some interesting Google search history, like you just asked, Colin. And so I, I'm kind of looking at my bookshelf that's next to me. And there are obviously lots of uh, books about poisons and toxins, whether they're from animal origin or whether they're created in a lab or from uh, plant origin, of course, is a huge one. And then to sort of augment some of that research that's on my bookshelf, I, of course, have done a lot of online research as well. But something that was really important to me when writing this book is, you know, when you're, especially in the historical fiction space, and you'll relate to this, you have to be really careful about being anachronistic and including information or terminology uh, that's that wasn't yet known or researched or discovered at the time that your characters are living. And so in 1792, there, and this is mentioned in the author's historical note at the back of the book, in 1792, the forensic toxicology was not even a science. It did not even exist that would allow a coroner to detect uh, poison in human tissue. And that worked out really well for me. And that's one of the reasons that I set the book in 1792 is because, or 1791, I should say, is because I knew that, uh, I knew that the apothecary could get away with her sinister behavior and not um, arouse suspicion with police who were finding dead bodies all over the city. So it was definitely uh, interesting. I think that a lot of writers have a, a maybe a little bit of an undercurrent of fear that their Google history would indeed draw some suspicion if uh, you know if the government started poking around. But it, honestly, it's kind of funny because all all the FBI would have to do at this point is just look at my published novel and what it's about, and I think I could probably get away with a lot of poison related research and not not concern them. So. I think that people always ask me, um, you know, if my husband is scared to like eat the food that I make him because I have all of this poison knowledge, but I always laugh. I it's, it's very much was just for the purposes of the book and pulling together the story. And, um, I, I don't have any of those poisons in my house. I can guarantee you that much. So she says, <laughs> so I see. Yeah. So she says, I thought it, it's, it's, it seemed a bit like a revealing memoir to me and how how your family and friends might have take a new view of you after this. You know, they, yeah, I think less because of the poisons. And I've had a lot of friends instead just say, you know, reading a book that you wrote is very weird because... I'm, I'm writing from the perspectives of characters who are not me and they're undergoing situations that I've never dealt with. And so a lot of people who know me really well 
have said that that's like this weird mental shift that they have to make while reading The Lost Apothecary because I wrote it, but it doesn't necessarily sound like something I would say. And I think that my next book that I'm working on, it, they're gonna, it's going to be even more of a struggle because it's it's quite a bit more scandalous. And I think that there's some revelations in, in this next book that people are going to probably ask me about. And, uh, but that's, that's part of art. It's so vulnerable and you just have to sort of infuse your characters with, with the truth that belongs to them, even if it's different than what you as the writer feel. Um, but that's, that's made for some interesting conversations with family and friends. Well, I think that's definitely the goal is is having that voice that's different from your own, that's not anachronistic, like you said. Um, so I would take that definitely as a compliment. Yeah, I thank you. I I um, I really tried to stay true to the way that the characters would talk. I will say Caroline, she's the modern day character, and she goes sleuthing throughout London after she finds this mysterious apothecary vial. And there are a lot of things about Caroline that are similar to me. Um, her, her interest in history, her interest, she's very much an Anglophile. She has an interest in British literature and loves castles and the countryside. All of those things are true for me as well. And when writing some of her scenes at the British library and looking through maps and talking to the researcher, um, Gaynor, I definitely, I, you know, I've been to the British library many times I've, I've gone mudlarking. And so I was, I was absolutely drawing a lot on a lot of my own real life experience when writing her. Uh, but of course, Nella and Eliza, they're the two characters in 1791. There were, a, there was a lot less that I could draw on internally to write them. That was more imaginative on my part and definitely creating fictional feelings and emotions that I frankly have never felt. So that was a really good creative exercise for me. And I think as an author who has written for any author who's written for many years would know every book is going to have new characters and the more characters you develop, you're going to be giving them all experiences that you haven't experienced yourself. And so it's, you just have to continue to stretch that comfort zone and that boundary of what you're, what you know and try and interview people or do, do proper research or just sort of brainstorm, like how would I feel in that situation? And that's very much what I had to do with Nella and Eliza. Well, I want to ask about the, the women in your novel. Um, you said earlier that you write a feminist historical fiction with a thriller aspect. And then you also talk about the women who come into the apothecary and write their names down. Um, and you have a specific reason for having their names recorded. Um, and I'm also interested in the story of Caroline and how she, you know, this is a more contemporary view of of, of women in the world today and how they, she had to give up her dreams, um, for, to, for marriage and her husband. Um, so you have that element and then you have the element of the, the women in 1791 who were essentially subservient, um, you know, which is no less tragic than what Caroline had to go through. So talk about that element of your writing and, and why that's important to you. Definitely. So the book is dual timeline, which is a challenge structurally to pull together. But one of the real benefits is the author can compare and contrast what's happening with the characters in each story. And so 
Just like you alluded to a moment ago, in both narratives, the historical and the present day narrative, we encounter women who are dissatisfied with their situation, but there's a very real difference in how they handle it. So 200 years ago, a woman could not simply leave her husband. She would be on the streets. I mean, women, they were housewives. They raised children. They could not own property. They could not enter contracts. They could not make reproductive decisions. If they were to leave their husband, they would be literally just homeless on the streets. So the solution that the women took in 1791 in my book that Nella helped them with was escaping that and finding a way to exert power over their circumstances. And if you contrast that with Caroline present day, she actually does have so many more options available to her. And that's what we see as she uh, lives out her journey throughout the story. So by the end of the book, she's taken an unhappy marriage and she's decided, you know what? I've done some soul searching. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to make a career shift. I'm going to go back on birth control. I'm going to separate from my husband. She's making all of these decisions that in 1791 simply weren't available to the women. And so that was one of the most interesting and exciting explorations for me as the author was to kind of show the reader, like, here are two very different ways to handle problems in your life. And it's it's largely a factor of what society has told women over the course of history that they can and can't do. And I think in many ways, it's um, it's wonderful to think of for, for someone like Caroline to think of all of the progress of the women who came before her and what she can do now as a result of their very brave efforts. Well, again, I, you know, I applaud you for that, um, bringing, bringing that out and, uh, of course doing it in, in such a way that has, has meaning. And that's, you know, I think that's what fiction, what stories do is, brings to life some of the things we might not otherwise recognize. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I do want to ask about something in your bio that I feel like needs some context. Um, mm -hmm. You grew up, you were raised in Northeast Kansas, growing up in a small log cabin nestled deep in the woods. Can you explain yes. what, what that means? Yeah, I probably had, uh, in terms of where I grew up, I think I arguably and probably in like the strangest 1% of most uh, American children. Um, I did. I grew up in it like a traditional log cabin, not just like a facade log cabin, like actual logs uh, built on logs. And this is a home that my parents had bought uh, before I was born. And I, I literally, when they brought me home from the hospital as an infant until I went off to college, so almost 20 years, I lived in the same house. And it was surrounded by about three acres of very dense woods. And there was a beautiful creek out back. And I didn't have siblings at home. They were all much older than me. And so I sort of just entertained myself. I was, um, I was too far from the city to go over to friends' houses very much. And so I spent a lot of time in nature. I, it was when I started just dabbling with writing and journaling and a little bit of poetry. 
And it's funny because as a child, I hated living so far away from everybody. But now I look back and I think that there's so many life lessons that I gained and definitely independence. I mean, I learned how to just keep myself entertained for hours on end. And I've always felt very close to nature and animals and find a lot of metaphors for life in nature as well. And I think all of that comes from my upbringing. So of course, now I look back and I'm, I'm so grateful and I wouldn't change a thing. But I feel like that's such a unique upbringing that I, I, I've always, it's always been in my bio from long before when even The Lost Apothecary was published, because I, I really am very proud of it. Yeah, I can see as as a child, maybe you'd see that as a disadvantage. But now as I sit here in an apartment with the cars going by on the highway every three seconds, it just sounds so wonderful. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I, I, I do also want to ask about um, your YouTube channel, your querying resources. You kind of give some behind the scenes and... Um, you, you seem to want to encourage other authors um, that, that maybe are on the same path you are, you are on. Why do you decide to do that? You know, I've always, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that, but I will say that I've always found a lot of joy and satisfaction in teaching other people how to accomplish something that I think is accessible to them. And the publishing industry, there's such a... Uh, like a black box around it. And it is a very powerful industry. And I think a lot of people think that there are just so many secrets with the way that authors get paid. And there, there is a lot of confidentiality around the industry as a whole. But I truly, I mean, I just got done telling you that I grew up in a two bedroom log cabin and I have no formal writing experience. I worked in finance and here I am. I, I'm a New York Times bestselling author and it's, it just, it can literally happen to anybody. And so when I reach out to people with resources for querying or writing conferences, uh, you know, I've got my email on my webpage because I love hearing from readers and I often get questions about writing classes and podcasts and that type of thing. I make that I make myself available in that way because I just think it's important for people to know that these dreams are not inaccessible to them. And I really believe in the importance of doing brave things and living outside of your comfort zone. And uh, maybe in a way that makes me like, a, you know, maybe I want to be a mo motivational speaker someday or something, but I just love helping other people realize that life is so short and you can do that soul searching to figure out what would fulfill you exactly like Caroline does in the story. I mean, the, her, her internal monologue about questioning um, happiness versus fulfillment. That's my favorite part of the book. And I hope that readers pause at the end of that chapter and ask themselves those same hard questions. But I love just helping people who are, uh, behind me in the process, feel encouraged. And I think that one of my favorite analogies or metaphors to think about is if we've got a, a ladder or a totem pole. I mean, there's always going to be people below us and people above us. And so it's important to keep a hand down and a hand up because as much as I'm helping the people who are following in my footsteps, I also do lean and ask questions of people who have more experience or 
uh, more books or a bigger name than me. And a couple of examples like Fiona Davis and Kate Quinn, they're both very big in the historical fiction space. And I regularly email them just asking for advice, like how do you handle this situation? So the fact that they support me, I mean, it's really just a circle of, of um, compassion and empathy and helping one another. And I can't imagine just sort of shutting myself off from that and saying, you know what, I've made it, so I'm not going to help anybody else. I really can't see myself ever reaching that point. Well, that's very insightful. And, and I love the latter analogy. Uh, um, I'm guessing you didn't just come up with that on the fly. No, I, I share that analogy a lot with people and it seems to really resonate because I think it's very much a mental image. And if you're on the ladder, like there's just always going to be so many people who are below you and above you. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad that that resonated with you. And I think about that daily, just how we're all kind of chasing different dreams and we need help and we should give help as well. Well, you said you are working on a new project, and um, I don't remember if you said if that if you have a contract for that or not, but how much are you able to tell us about your current project? Yeah, so I, I really can't share a whole lot, but I am working on something new um, that will be published, uh, um, and it's not for a while, though. Um, it's also historical fiction. It, it it also features brave, rebellious women. It's got that thriller-esque element with a lot of cliffhangers and twists. And so it's got so many of those really rich elements that, that readers have loved in The Lost Apothecary, but it's also a completely different topic. And I'm really excited about that. It's, um, it's a topic that I have really loved thinking about and dwelling on since childhood. And I, I wish I could share it, but, and, and I probably could not that, you know, it's not that that is secret information, but it's, I don't want to spoil it for anybody because when the, when the book is finally announced, I want people to be really excited and surprised by what it's about. Sure. Well, you know, after talking to you, I, I'm excited for it. And, and I can say that you don't have to worry about a sophomore slump, I don't think. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I hope not. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I really think that I feel so fortunate that The Lost Apothecary has been such a success. And I, I really just feel, I, I don't know why this happened to me. Like I ask myself that every day, why this book? I think a lot of it's luck, some of it's talent, some of it's just networking and, and being kind of an extrovert, but I, I'm just so thrilled that it has been such a great success. And so I've told myself, you know, even if the next book isn't quite as big, that'll be perfectly fine. I still feel like I'm, I'm kind of ahead of the game and ahead of where I ever thought I would be. Definitely. Well, I've been talking with Sarah Penner, author of The Lost Apothecary. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me and congratulations. Well, thank you again so much, Colin. I really appreciate you having me on and hopefully we'll get the chance to chat again sometime in the future.
So, um, what? I mean, you must be just floating on cloud nine right now. Um, what's the last day and a half been like? Yeah, so it's funny because when we um, got this on the schedule, we this news had not been announced about Fox. And now, of course, it is. I've actually been sitting on this news since, I think, October, so like almost nine months. And um, it's what's interesting also is there are so many hoops and hurdles to jump through in order to get a book onto screen. And so the press release that came out yesterday, it's it's kind of interesting because what it all says is true and wonderful information. But what it doesn't say is that there are still a lot of things that need to happen in order for The Lost Apothecary to actually become a, a drama series with Fox. So, um, you know, they need to bring on the writers and the producers. And so there's still a lot of steps. And I, I wake up every day and still cross my fingers that those things will happen. But of course, I'm thrilled now for everyone to know that we have a studio attached. And, and that's just hugely good news for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I'm I'm already recording, so I might just use. I mean, you just answered that sure. so nicely. I might just keep that and use that. Go for it. Um, <laughs> no problem. 